And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. Right, folks, here we go. Here we go with another fine episode of the Rodcast coming at you thanks to your good friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. My name is David Steele. I am excited to be with you today. And I want to thank Larry Babb, as always, for that fine introduction. It is good to be back, back in the saddle and with a very special, very entertaining episode to share with you today. Our guest is the inimitable, the incomparable, the enigmatic, the indefatigable Tony Thacker. Now, for anyone listening to this, it is more than likely that you're not only familiar with Tony, but you also, more than likely, have a book or two or three on your shelf with his name on the binding. And, you know, Tony is one of those guys in the hot rod world who has done and seen it all. As you'll hear, he has many a story to tell. Yes, he he's a well-known author and automotive journalist, but he he's also been a motorcycle builder, a hot rod shop manager, a Bonneville racer, a builder of brands, and has worked with many of our most famous and well-respected craftsmen and, and car builders. He continues to contribute to all of our favorite magazines and somehow authors a new work about every two years or so. Um, how, how he keeps this schedule is something to, to marvel at, but I think you'll hopefully understand a little more about how the man ticks after hearing this part one. Uh, part one, by the way, of a, of, a, of a several part series that we will be posting out over future episodes of the Rodcast. So a lot to look forward to here. And as you'll hear, Tony has a fascinating story and a zest for adventure unlike anyone I've ever known. And his journey, his journey is kind of mind boggling. And I am happy to say that you know, I've known Tony for 20 years or more, and I consider him a close friend and, and a mentor. But sitting down with him to perform these interviews was pretty eye-opening, uh, even for, like I say, someone who, who thought they'd heard most of his stories and most of his story. Well, uh, yeah, boy, I was, uh, I was wrong. And what a treat of a thing this is to be able to share with you today. So sit back, buckle up, and hang on as we get to enjoy part one of this series of talks with the always entertaining, the always colorful, my friend, Tony Thacker. We're rolling, right? We're rolling, right. Look at that. Now I get to pretend like I don't know you. Hey, David. Which I do very often, <laughs> actually. We've, we've nearly slept together. <laughs> we've traveled together. We'll never get started. <laughs> we are starting. We're going now, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we're rolling. 
Get going. We're on a roll. Ask a this is then. this is on a roll. This is on a roll. No wonder you were a long time with Ed Pink. We did this for about three oh hours. <laughs> just this right now. It's okay. Here we go. Well, thank you for being with us. Appreciate your time sitting down. Um, first question is always the same with us. Really? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> Do I have to give the same answer as everybody else? Uh, just if it's true. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you say your name's Ed Pink, it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's Pinkhead. I've got a little <clears throat> bit of touch of Pinkhead. <laughs> God damn it. All right. Can we just... Just get into it and ask the fucking question. Let's go get some food. Yeah. Screw this. <laughs> ask the question. What's the first question? First question is always the same. Yeah. State your full name, oh, yeah. where you were born and when. Uh, Anthony Thacker. I was born in Northampton, England, uh, November 1949. And your parents, what did your parents do when you were a kid? What were they doing? Ooh, when I was a kid. Uh, my father was a bricklayer and my mother worked in the print industry. So, uh, you know, just regular, normal, normal people, not car people at all. I mean, you know, my dad liked beer. He didn't really like cars very much. But he, you know, tolerated my passion and uh, encouraged it. So that was great. But you know, they, they weren't into it at all. And only child, siblings? Only child, can't you tell? Yes, only child, not even a dog. <laughs> no room. No room, there's no room. And yeah. where in England was, was your town? I was born in Northampton, which is uh, about 100 miles north of London, not far from the drag strip, Sandipod. Um, but when I was three, my parents moved to Kent, and I went a couple of years later. And do you remember being a kid in Kent and what that was yeah, like for Yeah, you? I do, yeah, because back then, um, Kent was the, what they called the Garden of England. And so it was orchards, apple orchards, hop farms where they grew hops that they use in flavoring beer, um, cherry orchards, um, not many bananas, but all the other, you know, English fruits, pears. And um, so in the summer, you know, we'd go picking fruit. That's what everybody did. You know, all the people came down from London, all the people who were normal people there would go to the farms and pick fruit. And it was great. I remember getting as sick as a dog on strawberries because you can't stop eating them because mm. they're free. And you were just gobbling them and putting two or three in the punnet and gobbling more till you throw up. So I remember that, yeah, like it was yesterday. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was an idyllic childhood where, you know, often as older people talk about those times when you could go out, you know, straight after breakfast and not come back till it was well after dark. Nobody ever worried about you. Only a few kids disappeared and it didn't matter. But uh, no, I mean, it was just idyllic. You know, summers just out on bicycles, riding around, you know, playing in the woods, which you never had to worry about back then. You know, there weren't any creepy people around or we hadn't even invented any of that stuff. So from that point of view, yeah, it was idyllic childhood. Just wonderful. And I remember, you know, lots of visions of it, not details so much, but, you know, we used to go to this little park called Moat Park. And, it, you know, looking back, it was a huge, huge big park with a big, big lake that would freeze in the winter and we'd all go, you know, skating, slithering around. We didn't have skates. We didn't have money for skates, but we could go slithering around and tobogganing and all that stuff. It was just great. I mean, really, really lovely. And there was this big gully that we would take our bicycles down and try to ride down one side and up the other side. And it was great. It was a great challenge. It was, you know, like hill climbing on a motorcycle or something like that. It was, so it was good. It was good fun. And we'd play street games. You know, we lived in a, you know, like a regular little area of row houses. 
And there were lots of kids. I mean, probably, you know, 10 or 15 boys that you could throw a stone at, you know, where you lived. And we were all slightly different ages, but all, you know, within, say, 6 and 13, 15, something like that. And we played in the street, played in the street all day, you know, until it was dark and somebody said, hey, it's time to come in. Just, it was wonderful. That was really, really good fun and carefree and easy. I mean, I suppose we had a lot of money, but we, we farted then. Yeah. <laughs> right in the middle of my interview. That's How exactly what I thought. <laughs> I thought, I know it's not a fart, but it sounds like it a sounds fart. It sounds like a fart. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it was a wonderful childhood. You know, and my parents were, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't intellectuals or anything, but... Um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. It was it was a nice, fun family, and my dad was one of eleven, and my mother was one of four or five. So come holiday time, Thanksgiving especially. Oh no, we don't have Thanksgiving in England. Sorry. Um, you know, come Christmas and all that. We'd all get together and have great big parties, and it was really, really good fun. And that sort of made up for being an only child. But I was like my mother. I was glad when they all went home. You know, it was great. Whew, that's over. But it was it was it was really good times. Lots of fun. It's amazing to hear that because it sounds like you, you hear so many stories about post-war England and how depressing oh. and gray and grim and... Oh, it was gray. It was gray, all right. And the cars were gray and the sky was gray. And that's how I got into this. That was a good lead-in. I don't know if you knew that, but um, I got into this because uh, when I was 12, 62, I had a paper route and somebody on my paper route had Hot Rod magazine. And now I wasn't ever smart enough to figure out why or who that was, but you know I would sit on the curb, gray skies, gray cars, gray people, looking at pictures of red and yellow cars under California skies, and how can you not get hooked? Yeah, you know it's like a shot of whatever I imagine heroin might be. I mean, bang, you've got it right there, and I just loved it. I mean, even though you know England is all about Formula One and sports cars. Hot Rod magazine was just magic for me. I actually liked popular hot rodding more because it had more color pictures than Hot Rod. Hot Rod had that weird green paper in the middle, the roto paper or whatever they call it. But popular hot rodding had lots of color pages. And I worked, you know, I'd go to the paper shop and we had a pretty good selection of American car magazines. So uh, I just loved that stuff. Just got into it, into it. And then we'd catch the bus, my school buddies and I, we'd catch a bus to another town where they had this place called the Anglo-American Bookstore. And it was a long way. I mean, I think it was a couple of buses and a, you know, a couple of 10-mile walks uphill. And, uh, but they had this you know, massive selection of all sorts of American car magazines, just you know, creepy monsters, Monster World, Hot Rod, I mean, all sorts of stuff that you'd never normally see. And we'd go over there for the whole Saturday, spend the whole Saturday in the bookstore, in the magazine store, looking at all these different magazines, and then we'd buy one or two and catch the bus home. It was great. It was wonderful. And I remember that really clearly. I remember going to that store. I could kind of see it. I remember going on the bus and I would have been 12. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been back to it, to the bookstore? No. You know, no, if it's, it's gone. still gone. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I made that up. I don't well, know. Well, that's interesting. I've I never was... been back. Anglo-American bookstore. Huh. It was in Gillingham, which was 10, 12 miles away. So that was kind of how I got into it. And then in 63... Uh, Dean Moon, who was then on the SEMA board, decided to ship the Moon Eyes Dragster to England. And Mickey Thompson kind of tagged along with that. And I'm going, Dad, 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 can we go to the you know, Brighton Speed Trials? It was it's a sprint 
on the seafront at Brighton, not on the pebbles, but on the Madeira Drive, I think it's called. And um, so my dad, who wasn't into cars or anything, you know, said, yeah, sure, it's only an hour away. So me and my two school buddies, Brooksy and Pete Higgins, we piled in the back of my dad's little Thames van and went off to the Brighton Speed Trials. And yeah, it was just magical. You know, seeing the Moon Eyes car was like fucking seeing the moon rocket or something, you know? It was so different from anything in England. It was all bright yellow and chrome and everything we had was... British racing green or red or something, you know, it wasn't bright yellow. Yeah, matte finish. Yeah, it was and, a matte finish. Yeah. And that was, and I think, I don't remember this, but I've read that the uh, the headers from Mickey Thompson's uh, dragster, which is still in England, set the hay bales on fire. You know, in England, we had hay bales as a safety barrier and it set the hay bales on fire. I didn't see that, but that's what I've read. But it was, it was magical, you know, see those cars, you know, it was great. Had you seen any kind of no. motorsport of any kind up before that? I don't think so, no. No, I don't pop think. pop down to Goodwood or anything? No, he didn't pop down <laughs> to Goodwood. My, my dad wouldn't go. You know, he wouldn't be doing that. But at that point in my life, something must have clicked where he thought, you know, I've got to, I'm going to take him. Because <clears throat> normally, you know, we went to the pub. That's what we did. You know, so we wouldn't have gone. He didn't go to anything like that. Yeah. And then that was in 63. I don't think I went to the drag fest but delivering the papers i got all this information and it, the, the drag races were sponsored by um an english newspaper called the people i think it was the people and then maybe the news of the world later but anyway so i'd read all about it you know so come home say hey yeah dad they got some drag races on here you know let's go and then in 64 they had a drag festival at a place called blackbush which is an old world war ii airfield west of london um, but I don't think, I can't remember going to that at all. So I probably didn't go. But, you know, it's a long time ago, you forget. Um, that's a big mouse. I can see it out of the corner of my eye. Mm. But in 65, um, they had another one. And uh, it was all top fuel cars. It was Tommy Ivo, Don Garlitz, Tony Nancy, uh, Chuck Griffiths, Buddy Cortinas, Bob Keith. And I'm going, Dad, Dad, can we go? And he goes... Have they got a beer tent? And I go, of course they do. I didn't know whether they had a beer tent or not. But I told him they did. And he goes, okay, let's go. So we all piled in the little Thames van and off we went to Blackbush, which was a journey back then. There were no freeways. And I remember it took hours and hours. I mean, it, I don't know how far it was from our house, maybe only like 60 or 70 miles, but it probably took three hours to get there. And it rained, it pissed down, man. It just poured down, absolutely poured down. But um, on the way there or at the event, all the time, just one of those English summer days yeah. when it just rained. And um, but I had a little camera. I can't remember what it was. It must have been a a brownie box camera. And uh, I still have the pictures that I took in 1965 of those guys. Wow. And what's even yeah, which That's is great. great. It's wonderful. I kept the prints. I put them in an album. <clears throat> kept all those prints, and um, and then became friends with all those guys. Well, I was going to say, did you did you meet any of them on that day? Did you approach any of them? Do you remember? I bought a Moon Eyes T-shirt from Merrick Chertkow, who drove the Moonshot Dragster, and we're still buddies. We don't remember, but he was selling the shirts, and I definitely bought a Moon Eyes T-shirt, which my dad thought was the stupidest thing he ever saw, until I bought the German helmet from Ed Roth. Ha! <laughs> he said, "We fought those bastards in the war, and you're wearing a German helmet." <laughs> so it, it put the you know it put the Moon Eyes t-shirt into shade. But yeah, I had it for the longest, longest time. 
silly. But I just love it. And I love the Moon Eyes brand to this day. You know, that brand is impregnated in my head like no other brand. I love it. Absolutely mm-hmm. love it. Yeah, so the it colors was then. And everything. Yeah. yeah, the colors, everything about it. And the, the, the racing was miserable. It was really terrible. But at some point, because the crowd didn't leave, um, the Americans decided to put on a show, even though the puddles. So when you see pictures of those top fuel cars, you know, burning down the track, it's water. It's water spray. It's not smoke from the tires. And there's a great shot of, can't remember which one now. It must be it must be Merrick in the Moonshot Dragster on the cover of Wally Parks's book, and it's off the ground. All four wheels are off the ground, and it's water spraying everywhere. And he was doing like 180 miles an hour. And it's just magical. You know, how could I get goosebumps now thinking about it? So how could you not get influenced by that fact that they, you know, put on a show for us? Yeah. And one of the greatest stories ever, I'm, you know, listening to Merrick, because uh, we've become good friends through the internet and other things since then. Um, he was telling me that uh, they did, I think they did Blackbush, and then they were due to race a place called Woodvale, which is an RAF station 200 miles north, the following week. But on that Tuesday or Wednesday, he went on a date with Sidney Allard's daughter. And he drove to the date. Just oh yeah, he by picked, chance. He, he picked her up somehow, you know, through okay. Sidney Allard. Sidney Allard put the thing together with Dean Moon. And he asked her out on a date. But on the way there, he had to negotiate a roundabout, which he'd never done in his life. So he crashed and he broke his back and ended up in hospital. Oh my God. So he's in hospital and they go, you're gonna be here, you know, a few weeks. And he goes, I'm racing on Saturday, I can't be in hospital. And so they said, well, you can't leave. So he got with Allard and they um, uh, negotiated, they sort of, you know, worked his escape. So he escaped from the hospital unallowed, drove to the event 200 miles north, Ran the Moon Eyes Dragster, and I think he ran 200 miles an hour with a broken back. And then they shipped the car back to New York. They flew home. He got in a truck and trailer, you know, as they would back in the days, open trailer, drove across America, raced it all across America, including the US nationals in wherever it was in 65, Tulsa or somewhere Indy, like that. Indy? Yeah, raced there. No, it wasn't Indy, it was somewhere else back then. And then he went to the doctor when he got to LA. Which is just a great story. He was 19. You know, ooh. You could only do that at 19. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's And just, he was okay. Yeah, he's okay. Yeah, yeah. he drove for years after that. Yeah. yeah. Drove a little competition coupe or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to take him to England, but maybe he's too old now. I'm not sure, but that's good. So, you know, how can you not, um, you know, that's sort of boys' adventure stuff when you're learning that. And it doesn't matter whether that's important in the, in the big scheme of the world things. But to me, that was oh my god! What are these guys are doing? This is this is incredible. And did it did it mean? Did you have some kind of a f- fixation or attraction to just American culture? Oh or, yeah, or was, yeah. So overall, yeah, you... yeah, all that English stuff. And I remember about that time, fifteen. Some of my dad's friends were into circuit racing, and they took me to Brands Hatch, which was real close to where we lived, um, to watch some kind of six-hour sports car race. And I remember just being bored to death, falling asleep, going, when are we going home, boys? I got to learn to like that. But at that time, no. If it didn't have chrome wire wheels and mags and zoomy headers, I wasn't interested. And I'd go to the model shop and buy, you know, I remember buying, I can't remember which was the first model. It was either Ed Ross beat Nick Bandit or it was the Devil Deuce 
Roadster, the monogram Roadster version of the Devil Deuce. That was the first model I ever bought. And then I'd buy models and, you know, mix and match them, take the chrome engines out of one and stick them in this and do all that, you know. That was great. I built that as a kid. Wow. Yeah. So but, uh, eventually you go off to school. Yeah, I was at school then. We had to go. We started school, you know, in England, same time, four or five. I guess I mean university. <laughs> no, I didn't or go to it, university. It, no, I hadn't even done. Or is it college? What do they call didn't it? Do, well, I went to college. Yeah, I went to school and um, I didn't excel in anything. I was quite good at, I think I was quite good at math. I actually brought my project book. I did a project on drag racing. We had to do a history project and I did it on drag racing and I got three out of 10 for it or something. It said not relevant. So whatever it says in the book, I've got it. I still have it. And yeah, you know, this, is, this means nothing. It's not history. Well, not relevant. Not relevant. Henry Ford, bunk. History is bunk, sir. Mm. And so, you know, and I'd love to go find the history teacher if he's still alive and say, hey, look, I made a career out of this. And I'm still working, made a good living, had a real good fun. So much for your, you know, your comments on my project. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so, you know, finished school and my dad was, you know, by then he was, you know, he owned the construction company and was into real estate and really sort of wanted me to be in that world. And um, I got a job in a, in a realtor's and just hated it, just, just loathed it, you know. And at what age were you at that point? I'm 17 then, yeah. And then I found an ad in the newspaper when you still found ads for jobs in newspapers and just doing newspapers for um, an engineer's job in London. And we, were lived, we lived about um, in Maidstone, which was probably 40 miles from London. So like an hour on the train and, um, you know, it was a, 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 a telecoms engineer. And uh, the pay was, you know, vastly more than I was getting in the realtors. And, um, you know, London was exciting. And that would have been 1967, 68. And, you know, back then, you know, London was just happening. It was that whole mod scene and all of that kind of stuff. It, it was, you know, I wanted to go and work in London. And my mother was... You know, she was kind of always the adventurous one in the family. Go, boy, get on the train, go. Because she mm. left home when she was 12 or 13, I think. And um, so she was, um, uh, you know, very supportive of that. And my dad was supportive, but in a different way. So off I went to London and, uh, you know, got a job as a, as a telecoms engineer and hated it. Just hated it. Just was not interested. Like the engineering aspect of it all. But, um, you know, it was kind of a goofy job. And um, it was just at that time when um, the world was changing from, uh, I don't know what they even call it, like mechanical switching in the telephone world to electronic switching. So as it changed, you know, so the work became less and less because it didn't break down like mechanical things. You know, they were always breaking down. They were getting dusty and wearing out, whatever. These electronic things, they didn't wear out. Mm. So we just sit there. And, you know, nothing, nothing ever happened. So we, we would go to the pub, you know, and a typical, a typical Friday in working there was get in at eight o'clock, clock in, have a cup of tea, go get our wages, which you still got paid in a pack then in cash in a little brown envelope. And you had this bundle of cash and it was Friday and you were in London. So then we'd go shopping at nine or 10 o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock we'd go to the pub and we'd drink until... 2.30, 3 o'clock, go back, have a cup of tea, clock out, get on the train, go home. Did that for years. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then my buddy put a bomb in a post office, and that changed all of that. So 
you know, because we, we were bored. We had nothing to do. And there's loads of us because they had staffed these places full of young people figuring that that was the technology was going to be going on forever. And suddenly it wasn't. So we had all these young guys there, nothing to do. So we got into trouble. For a second, I thought you were just going to say that in passing. <laughs> no, 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 that no. Your buddy put a bomb in a post office. He did. And he did. Paul Cambata. We... I'm still in touch with him. Yeah. We, and he... It wasn't a bomb. It was it was a you know it was a brown paper bag with a battery and some wires and a sandwich, and who knew what a bomb looked like? And so anyway, we we worked we worked above a post office in Old Street in London, and he put it in the post office, and all the people disappeared. And then the police arrived, and because it was right at the start of some IRA campaign, mm. and mm. you know we hadn't realised what we'd done, but we we soon did, and. Um, he said, well, I need to go and fess up to this. Will you come with me? So me and another fool said, yeah, all right then. So we went down there. He fessed up and we got arrested and got to the old Bailey. But it was very lucky because by the time we got to court and there'd been an internal investigation, our bosses said they got up and gave evidence and said it's our fault. It's not their fault. It's our fault because they didn't have anything to do. We didn't employ them properly. It's down to us. And the judge went, okay, off you go. Crazy. So we, we walked away. Yeah. Wow. Which was how the world was then. You know, they took, they took responsibility for their part of it rather than saying, oh, it's nothing to do with us. We didn't do that. So it was pretty cool. And then they gave me like the best job of ever. I got to work on this switchboard where, you, you know, it's plugged in things like an old-fashioned switchboard. And uh, it was something to do with telegrams. And so if you were trying to send a telegram to, you know, Africa – then you know you would type that into the machine and it would go down a wire and it would eventually get to Africa. Well, if the wire was down somewhere, they would come, they would call me and say, hey, the wire's down in Zimbabwe. I go, okay, mate. And I'd call somebody and say, hey, the wire's down in Zimbabwe. And they go, okay, mate. And then eventually somebody would go and mend that wire. Then a guy would call me and say, hey, it's mended. And I go, okay, mate. And I would call the first guy and go, okay, it's mended. And they could get back on selling, sending telegrams. And I did that for, I think, maybe the last two years I was there. And it was just a magic job because, you know. Yeah, why, why was it such a... Well, because we got paid loads of money. We worked on shifts and there were four of us and um, two old guys and two kind of apprentices. I was one of the apprentices. And the two old guys did the work. They took the responsibility. So the two apprentices, you could either go to the movies or you could go to sleep or whichever one you wanted to do, depending on, or go out, whatever, you know. So the two old boys, took, and one of them, you know, would go to sleep, and the other one would take care of the, the business. So that was it. So we got paid loads of money and didn't really have to do very much. And that's when I started getting into the business. I, um, a friend of mine, a filmmaker, had started working for, <coughs> that would have been about 72, and he had started working for Bike Magazine, which was the first... Um, sort of modern motorcycle magazine, you know, not like all the other ones. It was kind of about choppers or off-roading or fashion or whatever it was. It was it was a different kind of bike magazine. And um, did you know the magazine beforehand? Uh, it, Were you aware? There of was it? one issue. The only one one had come out, and that was it. And uh, but way prior to that, my father had always said when I was fifteen, sixteen, if you don't buy a motorcycle, because you could have a motorcycle at sixteen in England legally but you couldn't have a car till you were 17. So most guys would get a motorcycle, you know, learn to drive on that and then get a car when they were 17. And he said, if you don't get a motorcycle when you're 16, 
then I'll buy you a car when you're 17. And he'd seen you know, a lot of friends die on motorcycles, and he didn't want that for me, which was fine. And I went along with that. So I let him buy me a car, and then I went and got a motorcycle straight away. <laughs> which I'm not sure he ever forgave me for. But, uh, so I had built this, my first custom motorcycle in the basement of our house when I was 17. Yeah, I carried it all down there in bits and you know, looked at pictures. I, we, we, we could find copies of Ed Roth's Chopper's magazine. It was that little teeny-weeny pocket-sized book. Somehow they got to England and we could get those and, uh, you know, we were just going through them all the time and looking at all that stuff and, and, you know, trying to build our own bikes. Well, so yeah. you, you really were obsessed with this stuff. This, whether yeah. it was cars or bikes, it didn't yeah. matter. Just, oh, yeah. yeah. As and long then, as it was kind know, of flashy. Car, and yeah, as long as it was flashy and sort of American and, looking and that. Yeah, and the car my dad bought me was a 1946 Riley. It had been my uncle's car. And he'd had it a long, long time. And he'd had it sort of restored, not well, it turns out. But then my dad bought it for me. And I immediately, you know, chromed a bit, took the hood sides off. It looked like a 34, but with four doors and a, what do you call it, canvas top. And uh, I immediately, you know, chromed bits of the engine, painted flames on the hood in the basement. And, you know, just about killed my parents with the stink of the smell. And, um, you yeah, know, drove that for a few years. What happened to the bike that you were building in the basement? Did you build a bike? I finished A it, usable yeah. bike? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I built it and rode it. Yeah, it was a Triumph 19 Sprung Hub, 1949, 50, something like that. I can't remember. $5 it was. Yeah, yeah. Because back then, nobody cared about those things. You know, it was, it was like, be like a Model A today. You know, it was an old Triumph with a Sprung Hub, you know, because it was like a rigid frame. And then it had this hub in it that had big springs inside it. Mm -hmm. So it would, you know, had some suspension. But we would turn the hub upside down and lower it another inch. So then you'd get um, sidecar yokes for the forks. And they were kicked out a little bit more so that a sidecar had a little bit more trail than a regular bike. Mm -hmm. So between the hub and stretching the frame a little bit and the sidecar forks, you could build a nice chopper out of that. It was pretty good, yeah. And then I started a chopper business with a friend of mine. Yeah, so I can't remember how old were we were then. 19? Can't remember exactly. But we started a little chopper business called Rat Motors in a chicken shed. And we would make handlebars and forks and stuff like that. Because, you know, there was hardly any business back then. So we just started this. And, uh, and what do you say you made them? We made them. We made them. Just I made handlebars. I made Z-bars like that. I made risers, which are like Harley-Davidson things. They hold the handlebar up above the, the mm -hmm. yoke. And I did three welding lessons. But the welding teacher, I didn't like the welding teacher. I, I remember that he had smelly breath, but it might have been something else. But pool and dip, pool and dip, pool and dip, pool and dip. So I would weld up handlebars. Yeah, and it, it frightens me to death to think yeah. of that. People <laughs> driving around on these bikes with, your handlebars. with my handlebars. Yeah, because they couldn't have been you know, certified because I couldn't weld. Oh, my so, God. But we made loads. We made tons. And my friend Robin, he would make the forks. And um, we made, so we made footrest kits, handlebar kits, uh, sissy bars, which we made out of rebar. My dad would bring the rebar home from work. And it was twisted rebar, you know, so it was beautifully twisted, but it was always rusty. So you had to file it by hand. We didn't have any machines, didn't have anything in the chicken shed with the chicken on the floor, you know. And, uh, but we had a little business there. I think it lasted maybe a year or two, something like that. Yeah. And then I can't remember why we decided to stop it, but we, we decided we'd, we'd had enough. And um, so we cleaned the chicken shed out 
And funnily enough, many, many years, decades later, I met a friend of mine, Chris Boyle, and he had a gang of bikers, him and some friends from Bournemouth. And he said, you know, we came to rob you that night. I said, what? He said, yeah, we broke into your chicken shed to rob you. He said, and you'd already cleaned it out. He said, all there was was chicken shed. <laughs> he said, you'd already gone. It was great. I thought it was so ironic that they'd, they'd tried to do that, you know, because that's what it is. So that was, that was 60, yeah, it must have been, yeah, late, late 60s. And I think then in about, I'd finished that by the time, by 72, when I started in the magazines. So anyway, so I get this magazine that my buddy Phil is writing for. Yeah. And... Um, the story comes out, and uh, I can't even remember what the story was. I don't think it was about me. It was about something else. And um, I'm on this shift job in the telecom business, and this old man, Joe Lingham, I said, oh, this story's not very good. And Joe Lingham said, write to the editor. I said, tell him it's rubbish. I said, can you do that? He said, of course you can. I said, well, how do you do that then? So Joe, who was a canny old boy, he told me how to write to the editor and, you know, kind of in a constructive way, say that, hey, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you try that? And uh, the editor, Mark Williams, um, who was very famously got busted for lots of drug deals later on in life, um, wrote to me. I wrote to him and he wrote back and I still have the letter. I found it the other day. So Bike Magazine, 1972. And it, it says, you know, if you're so fucking clever, you write for us. So I thought, well. Are you paraphrasing? Yeah. Well, no, it's pretty much what it, the letter said. It's only wow. like a couple of lines. I still have it somewhere. And um, so they had a little uh, office in um, Chinatown in, in London. And I worked not far from there at the time. And uh, so he said, well, come over. So I went over there and met him and we got on fine. And um, he said, well, you like drag racing. Do a story about drag racing. So I thought, okay, why not? You know, this is good. And so now suddenly I'm at the drag races, which I would have gone to anyway. Now I got in for free. I've got a press pass and I'm going to get paid when I've done the story. So I did it. And I thought it was, and they sent a photographer along and he was shit. It was a, some school photographer, you know, some student. And the pictures were crap. And so when the story finally came out, I showed it to my dad. I said, look at this. The pictures are terrible. He said, well, I'll buy your camera. He said, you can take pictures as bad as anybody else. So he bought me a little Russian Zenit. It was like a knockoff of a Zenith. Mm. It was called Zenith, and it was a little Russian camera. I, don't, I can't remember how much it was. Maybe 25 quid. That sounds like a lot. But anyway, he bought me a camera. So the next story, so, and I'm, I've kind of figured out now, even though I wasn't very smart, I figured out that, hey, I like this. I can do this. And the ideas for stories suddenly kind of popped up. So I go back to see Mark. He, gets, he pays me. I got 25 quid for the story. So, God, 25 quid, that was great. You know, and I got in for free. And uh, What were you making at your job? Oh, I was making a lot of money back then. I was probably making, um, boy, 100 quid a week, which was quite a lot of money in 72. It was quite good. Because in the previous job at the Realtors, I was making six pound a week. And that was only five years. Dear God. Six years. So it was a big jump. Yeah. 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 Got paid well. And then um, I decided to... So I'm going to write. And he's, so I thought, wow, what can I write about next? How can I keep this going? And a friend of mine had the best custom paint shop in England at the time. It was called Mexpray. So I went across to see Pete and said, hey, can I do a story on the paint shop? He goes, absolutely. So now I'm taking crappy pictures with my camera and I got paid 50 bucks, 50 quid. Because you're doing both jobs. Because I'm doing both jobs now. Now I'm the photographer and now I'm the writer. And 
It wasn't, you know, it didn't matter whether the pictures were good or not because they published the other ones, which are terrible. And so now they publish mine. I'm thinking, well, this is good. So I just, um, you know, figured out how to try and carry that on. And I suddenly thought maybe I need to try and get a job in this. But at the time, there were two magazines. There was Bike, and they just launched an English magazine called Custom Car. And there were only three people on each magazine. There was the editor and two, you know, two writers. So there were no jobs. I mean, you were waiting for somebody to die, and they were all the same age as me, so nobody was going to die. So I didn't really know what to do at that point. So I started a little company called Flash Cadillac. I'd heard of the band Flash Cadillac, which was Jimmy, I suppose, wasn't it? Jimmy Vaughan, wasn't he in the Flash Cadillac and the Continental Kids? Was that the name of it? Yeah, no. that was their band back then. So I started a little company called... No, the fact you don't know your music history. Well, the Continental I, Kids, I, yeah. I, the Flash Cadillac part is... I'm sure that's where we should look it up. Anyway, yeah. I'm sure that's what it was. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I started this little company called Flash Cadillac, and I was going to rent out cars and motorcycles to you know photographers, movie companies, things like this. So I made a little trifold brochure and uh, kind of figured out, which looking back now, that was probably not unsmart of me. I kind of figured out to go to the phone book and look at you know all of the photographers and the, and the film production companies and make a mailing list. I didn't know what a mailing list was, and I've never really thought about it to this day, but that actually must have been a little bit smart at the time because I made a mailing list, and I sent a little brochure to all of these people, and we got work. The phone started to ring, which was difficult because I didn't have cell phones. I lived with my parents. My dad hated the phone. You know, it was like, Zzz! if the phone ever rang, get off that bloody phone. I'm making money, Dad. I don't care. You know, so that's how it was. But again, he did support me. And then one day, uh, this girl rings and um, she said, uh, why don't you come over to our office? You know, we're interested in, in renting a motorcycle. So I go, okay. So I go to the West End. Again, I was, you know, working in London. So just walk across there. Go to this sort of office. Meet this stunning looking woman. And... Um, she wanted to rent my, I had this chopper, I built a new chopper by then. She wanted to rent it. And uh, so I gave her a price, like 100 quid an hour. She went, okay. And I'm thinking, shit, I should have asked for two. And I did try to, you know, bump it up a little bit. And she went, no, 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 we already agreed on that. And she was so cute, you couldn't not agree. You know, just, okay, whatever. Well, it turned out to be Gary Glitter and doing these motorcycle tours with the now infamous Gary Glitter, which wow. at the time, you know, we didn't know anything about that. So, yeah. But man, that was a lot of fun. 100 bucks, 100 quid an hour. So now I'm getting 100 quid an hour to drive a motorcycle on stage with him standing up on the back and drive across stage. He would get off, do his song, and I would drive off. It was great fun. We did that for four years. So you toured with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I think I'd left the... Yeah, I must have left the engineering job by then. I couldn't get promoted. I mean, they just knew I wasn't interested and didn't care. So I couldn't get promoted. So I thought, well, I'll just quit. My dad had a construction co his own construction company by then. So I, I said, I'll come and work with you, Dad, and then I can do this stuff on the side. So he went, sure. So I went and worked for him. I was, hated it. <laughs> stupid, stupid. But, you know, I was doing lots of other things on the time. So, yeah, we did concerts, television shows, movies, toured. Then I went off. In 74, I think I went off around Europe with my first wife. 
So my buddy Guy, he did that tour and went to Ireland and other places. But yeah, did Scotland, Birmingham, Manchester, all the big, you know, English venues. Did you did you have a buddy who was staying back home and renting other vehicles to no, people? No, no. That was once it. you got that contract, once I was got all that job, needed. that was all I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I didn't push it maybe as hard as I should have done because other friends who stayed in that business have all done, you know, really well. But by the time I was done, but after the four years, we were done with it. I mean. You know, you know about that business. I sure do. You know, in um, the back of a van up and down the motorway, you know. And, and he was a big deal. So you're playing oh, huge. big venues. Big venues. To a lot yeah. of people. A lot of people. A lot of screaming girls. And sometimes one, I can't remember where, we're Birmingham, I think it was. We had 11 motorcycles on stage and we were all drunk. So we're all on stage and, you know, waving the headlights around so that it looked like spotlights going all over the crowd. Yeah, you know? yeah. That was all part of the thing. Yeah, it was absolutely nuts. Really it, good fun, though. I it mean, had to be shit. a blast. It was great. And, I, you know, as a kid, I was then, what was then, 22? You know, I was, you know, it was again, it was, God, we're in the middle of the rock and roll business. And nobody knew about Gary then and what he, you know, what he was like. We were just on tour and having yeah. a lot of good fun. Yeah, it were was you great. running into other bands on tour? I was just thinking of that in the back of my head as you were about to ask that question. I don't remember that, no, because I think he was... Yeah, he was the headliner back then. I mean, it was, you know, like him and uh, Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, all that stuff was going on. So there might have been a support band, but I don't remember a support band because I just remember that thump of, you know, rock and roll part two or whatever it is. And that was how the evening always started. And the kids were just going nuts. And we'd be on the stage revving it up, you know, blowing the ends out of it. And all. But we never had any trouble. I mean, it was just great. Yeah, good fun. Turn up. You know, get paid. But in the end, that was it. You know, it was like probably a lot of those people turn up, get paid, go home. Yeah. You know, because the rest of it is just awful. You don't want to be stuck with the band. And he was never around anyway. So, but you know, that whole after concert thing is miserable. Hated it. So, mm. and didn't want to be in the transit going up and down the motorway. You know, that was no fun. Rather be in my own transit and go home. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but we did it for four years and we made a lot of money and had a really, really good time. So, no complaints. I think Rob Halford of Judas Priest must have seen one of these shows. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, because in the 80s, that's what he did. That's what he did? Yeah, oh, late wow. 70s, early 80s. Oh, yeah. This would wrote have been a Harley early. out on stage. Yeah. Oh, it must have been, yeah, because we did it in 72 to 74, I think. You guys were the originals. Yeah, it might have been. It might have been somebody who did it before. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, I can't imagine. Any, yeah. Early and mid-20s and you're single. Uh, I was dating my first wife, but she was good fun. She was a very adventurous let's go kind of girl. So sometimes she'd come to the concerts. <clears throat> She's in the movie. There's some movie on YouTube that we're in. I can't remember even no what it's called. No kidding. We've got to find this. <laughs> We've got to find it. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. I forget. We'll, we'll yeah. cut to that so no, you clip don't right now. Have, you know, computers remember everything. <laughs> and you don't want to be searching Gary Glitter on your computer. It's, oh, that, now that is a very, no that's very no good, good advice for know. anyone listening. Yeah. In fact, we'll just edit that out. Well, that was good fun. So that would take us up to about <laughs> 73 I think my wife, my first wife and I, Bev, as I said, she was very adventurous. So we went off around Europe in a van, you know, like a customized van, which was really unusual in Europe at the time. But, you know, we drove all around Europe and ended up in Sweden and um, did a bunch of stories on the road. That's how we afforded to do that. Just went off for a few months. It was so great. So just freelance writing. Just freelance writing. Yeah, on a little little Remington or something in the in the van, you know, a little click, 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 click. And she was a, you know, she was good at English. And uh, she would correct all my, awful, I'm still terrible at grammar, you know, 
I'm like a pepper pot, you know, you shake the pepper on and blow and what's left is punctuation. <laughs> still can't punctuate, still can't spell. Hopeless, absolutely hopeless, even with spell check. Uh, you don't need just, any of that just here. terrible. No, you don't need it anymore. Nobody cares. Yeah. doesn't matter. Just what's the, what are the pictures of? They don't care what the words are. But it was good fun. Soup's arrived. Uh-huh. We hope it's soup. So, yeah, so that, uh, and then 70... Well, it's, it's interesting oh, to me because it sounds five, yeah. like you don't have a plan of any kind. You're, no, no, no. You're no, just no. kind of finding these opportunities. Yeah, if it was on the floor, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was there, yeah, let's go and do that. And I mean, and some of the things were crazy. I can't remember. My As I said, my first wife was very adventurous like that. And I remember a friend of mine, Tim Parker, we met up one day and he said, oh, I've bought a, a motorcycle in Italy, a Laverda. I said, oh, that's great. He goes, but I don't know how to get it home. I said, well, I'll go get it for you. He goes, really? I said, yeah. You know, you pay the gas and I'll go to Italy and get it for you. So uh, I managed to get a, uh, uh, a Toyota uh, Land Cruiser or whatever they were called, Space, Space Cruiser, whatever they were called back then, uh, to go to Italy and get this motorcycle. So we blast down to Italy and uh, we go to this place, Bolsano del Grappa, which is in the northern part of uh, Italy, up in the mountains, up above Venice. We get this little Laverda. And I'm thinking, and at the time, and it might still be the case, you weren't allowed to um, export any kind of antiquity out of Italy. So I'm thinking, how are we going to get this out of Italy? Because if we go back the way we came, we will get to the border in broad daylight and we might get stopped. And then the bike might get confiscated and I'm screwed. So I'm thinking, well, let's drive across the top of Italy, go to Switzerland and we'll, it'll be dark when we get there and it'll be perfect. We'll go out in the dark because the van had windows, unfortunately. It wasn't a panel van. I, didn't, I wanted a panel van, but I didn't get one. And uh, so we drive all the way across Italy. We get to the Italian border. It's pouring with rain. I'm thinking, great, we're done. We get to the border and there's this line of carabinieri standing there looking and they look in the van over there. So they drag us, you know, out and they, and I don't speak Italian. My wife was fairly, you know, fluent in different languages. And somehow we got through, we never paid a penny. We got through the border and just blasted across Europe. And then we get to England and we get fucked. We, we get to the customs in England and they go, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just went and fetched this motorcycle from a friend of mine. Well, where's the paperwork? Well, I don't really have any paperwork. Well, you can't do that. Well, what do you mean? I've done it, I'm here, you know. You know, and they let us out of Italy and, oh, man, they went nuts. They just gave us a really hard time. I can't remember what we had to pay. I don't think we paid very much. But, you know, after a few hours, oh, go, you know, go. So we, we got it into England. He still has the bike. Oh, wow. Yeah, and we did that in 75, I think it was. So he still has it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, which is great, isn't it? But we would do those things back then and not think twice about, because, you know, the world was a different place back then and you didn't really need to worry about all of those, and, and maybe we were too young to think about it. We just did it. Well, and there you have it. Another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. Extra special thanks to our guest, Tony Thacker, for putting in the time, sitting down with us for this multi-part series. Uh, we are gonna be, as I said, playing this out over the next several episodes of the Rodcast, so please stay in touch with us. Keep up on when these episodes drop, because I don't think you're going to want to miss one of these. 
all I can say for sure is um, Tony is not going to let you down. <laughs> Special thanks, as always, to our announcer, Larry Bag, all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. As always, our PR person is Angela Helton with social media management coming from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Ben Cahan, Eric Curtis, Cole Kuntz, and Katie Sloan. And as always, all Rodcast music is written performed by me. Special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who is always doing the heavy lifting and keeping us honest. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. So as always, if you'd like to learn more about the foundation, just hop over to our website, ahrf.com. You can support us there by checking out our merchandise, making a donation, or better yet, sign up to become a supporting member of the American Hot Rod Foundation. You'll get a lot of perks. You'll get to enjoy the video versions of many of these broadcasts. And uh, you can also follow us across social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we provide you with daily posts consisting of historical images from our archives, as well as information on future episodes of the broadcast. So again, huge thanks to my great friend, Tony Thacker, for his generosity and for just being such a great friend of the American Hot Rod Foundation and for everything he's contributed to our, our great American pastime throughout his entire career. So with that, we thank you for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope you'll join us next time right here for another great episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of The Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.